Oceans of Learning, the podcast celebrating our seas and Ireland's marine resource is presented by the Marine Institute. To find out more, go to marine.ie. Hi, my name is Finn van der Aar and welcome to the Oceans of Learning podcast, celebrating our seas and raising awareness around the importance of Ireland's marine resources. For episode two, we're focusing on our ocean, our livelihoods, and how our ocean economy supports a truly diverse range of jobs and livelihoods. So our ocean territory is actually almost seven times larger uh, than Ireland itself, than our landmass. And actually, there's a really cool real map of Ireland if you want to go check it out online, um, if you're curious. So the potential for the Irish people and businesses um, in terms of what we can get from our oceans is just absolutely massive. So we're going to hear some great stories now from a really just diverse range of jobs. We've got um, an Irish Navy diver um, to someone working in cosmeceuticals as a master formulator. Uh, We'll be looking at the renewable energy sector and even food safety as well. But first, let's hear from Tracy Ryan, the Managing Director and Master Formulator at Codex Beauty Europe. I guess I want to start with you have the coolest job title. So herbal alchemist formulator. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Sure, no worries. It sounds very Harry Potter, doesn't it? Um, yeah, so I I suppose I, I did my degree in herbal science. Um, I've always been just completely fascinated by plants ever since I was a young girl. I've studied horticulture. Um, I'm currently studying cosmetic chemistry. Um, so I suppose what a herbologist or um, a master formulator does is I put together the formulations uh, for Codex Beauty. Um, our products are primarily plant-based. So, um, you know, I would do the research on what plants we're going to use and what formats we're going to use them in and put the formulations together for us that's really cool I love that literally as we're talking about as well I can see that you have some plants in (laughs) I'm like I wonder what it's for (laughs) and that's that's really cool and and obviously like I'd have a big be a big fan of kind of natural skincare and stuff myself and it's very cool to see over the last few years that that industry is really growing um I guess and one of the interesting things I thought when I looked up um, Codex Beauty in particular is obviously that's a very international brand, but with a very Irish focus. Is there a particular thought behind that? Yeah, so um, I ran a small um, skincare company called Bia Beauty for about seven years in Ireland, straight after I came out of college, um, making skincare here from like natural native ingredients. And in 2018, we were bought out by Codex Beauty Labs. Um, their CEO, Barb, approached us and said that she was really interested in um, like skincare lines from around the world that were inspired by like their native plants and their native um, kind of herbal knowledge. So so we stood out to her as the Irish example of that. Um, so we joined Codex Beauty and we were really encouraged to like um, further develop our products and really draw on as much inspiration from Irish native ingredients and Irish herbal knowledge as we could, which is like literally what I'm obsessed with anyway. So we really kind of elevated the Bia line within Codex to, um, you know, bring in Irish seaweeds and plants. And um, yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, Codex has other lines from different parts of the world, but we're the Irish line. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And I guess um, I'd love to know a bit more about um, the Irish extracts that you are using. So so we talked um, on, with one of our other guests a, a little bit about how the kind of rise of the seaweed industry and, and all the amazing different kind of applications of of the compounds from different seaweeds. I noticed you guys use, I think, is it serrated rack in some of your pieces? Yeah, we do. We use serrated rack and we use bladder rack. They're the two main ones we use at the moment. Um, so many benefits for the skin in there. I suppose it's things like the fucoidins that we're really interested in, great anti-inflammatory benefits, like lots of studies that show they can like help stimulate collagen growth, um, help protect the collagen. And like collagen is the holy grail in skincare, really. It's what keeps our skin like firm and young looking so anything that can help there is great we're also interested in like the antioxidant benefits from it you know you've got like beta carotenes and vitamin e and again another big name in the skincare world antioxidants they like fight the free radicals help with aging on the skin um so many different things iodine in there alginic acid is another really interesting one for us like it's a humectant and humectants in skincare are the things that like draw moisture to the skin so a lot of people when they put on their moisture 
moisturizer, they may think the oils and things like that are hydrating them, but they're not. They're like what we call occlusive. They stop us losing moisture. But to get moisture in our skin, we need homectants, like things like hyaluronic acid is the really famous example, glycerine, but alginic acid is another really lovely homectant. It like draws water to the surface of the skin and gives us that lovely, like plump, dewy kind of um, thing that everybody wants going on with their skin. So some (laughs) amazing things really for us in, in those seaweeds. And that's why we use them. That's that's really cool. And in fairness, um, I feel like like before I used to definitely just um kind of slap the stuff on my face and hope for the best. But my um my stepdad is actually in kind of bio um cosmeceuticals, if that's the right phrase. Oh, wow. Um yeah, yeah, um from from Brazil. So so one of the ways that we were even kind of bonding is that he was telling me about these are all the different plants and that they grow where I'm from and this is what we use them for in skincare. So I was really excited then to chat to you because I was like, now I can tell you about the Irish version. Ah, amazing. So that's very, sorry, just take it back there. Um, you mentioned um, some of the extracts there. Like, how do you even know, or if this makes sense, how do you even know which ones to target or, or kind of how do you get an idea when you're like, okay, we're going to work with this species of plant here's yeah. what we hope to gain from it or? so I guess it all starts with with the research um you know the, the marketing team will come to us with an idea about what they want for a product then we'll have to look at what that product needs to do what kind of performance it has to have and then we go back to our research like what do we know about the different plants or the seaweeds what are the constituents in them what do those constituents do? How do we get the constituents out? Because it's not good enough just to say, well, like, you know, this, this plant or this seaweed has this constituent, but how are we going to get it out? And how are we going to make sure it's active? Um, so there's a lot of work goes on there in terms of research. We go back through research papers. Um, at Codex, we have a herbal advisory board. So like it's myself and some of my lecturers from college, from CIT, um, who are practicing medical herbalists. We have a great team, cosmetic chemists as well. And we really go through the research and have a look at like, like what what um what extracts are out there what sort of constituents do they have how are they going to work how are they best formulated like do they, are they water soluble oil soluble solvent extract like what way will we extract them how will they be active in the product kind of I guess it's really cool to know that you're you're kind of using um I guess Irish plants within within your work is there is that something new is there a, a history of of things being used like that in Ireland or could you tell us about that yeah, we do. We have a really long history in terms of, you know, people using herbs in Ireland for, for all sorts of medicinal reasons. What's actually really unique about Ireland is that we have a written history and an oral history of the use of herbs that goes like all the way back to like to a day Dan and talk, you know, our first herbalist was Armid and the stories and yeah, you know, yeah. I love that story. Um, so we have this really long history um, of, of the use of herbs. Um, we also had things like the Folklore Commission back in I don't know was it the 50s or 60s where they went around Ireland and they asked people what were the cures in their communities what were the things that were passed down and we have such a rich history of using herbs we also you know we would have had professional herbalists back in mid you know like in middle ages in Ireland we've an amazing history of um of the use of herbs in Ireland um and and in terms of like the seaweeds and stuff as well would they have been like I know in the past I've read lots about how they were used for kind of fertilizer on farms and obviously um, Ireland and Wales have have a very old history of maybe using them in food were they being used in that same kind of cure way that you're talking about were they being used in skincare or health Do, do you know yeah, absolutely. And things like bats, like very simple use of, of seaweed as well, like things like the use of bats goes back a long, long, long way into our past. Um, a really simple way that anybody can can gather seaweed and can use it and get the kind of benefits for their skin out of it. Yeah, there's a long history of that for sure. So like I was saying, we, we kind of you had that uh, great example of the kind of um, the folklore. I love that idea mm-hmm. of a folklore team, making sure that things aren't lost. Um, yeah. But so is is that something that there was kind of like a gap in and now we're recovering that knowledge or is that something that's kind of been built on over time? Yeah, it's it's something that there's a lot of work being done on in Ireland. So I did a degree in herbal medicine and CIT and it was like a really new course. I think we were like the second or third year of people to graduate from the course because there had been like a loss of of knowledge um, around herbal medicine in Ireland. I mean, there was a lot of like 
cures and stories passed down in neighborhood, but like the real kind of learned experience of herbal medicine, like some of it had been lost for sure. Um, so there's a fantastic team of medical herbalists in Ireland who put together the course that I studied. So it's a four year degree in herbal science. Um, like it covers everything from anatomy and physiology and everything you would do on like a, you know, biological sciences degree, but it brings in things like, you know, we would have courses called Materia Medica, where we learn about all of the, the plants and the extracts that we have available to us and we learn how to research what constituents are there and what they can do and we look at the different um you know researches out there in clinical trials around herbs so it, it's great it's really bringing the scientific element back into it because sometimes when I tell people that I studied herbal medicine they think oh well you were out in the field picking flowers and making well and <laughs> in fairness I was actually going to ask and I'm very curious to do that do you pick do you pick some of the stuff yourself and obviously um, yeah, you have a bit of a, a bit of a connection to the sea there are you kind of yeah are you, are you working on that too of course like I've always been a forager I think I've been foraging since I was about eight or nine years of age and um, I grew up in Tipperary so not by the sea but I have lived by the sea during different parts of my life and absolutely I'm I've always been a forager but I think it's lovely to to bring that kind of foraging and instinctual and very basic kind of idea of herbalism but to bring a, a real scientific edge to it as well and to you know to get people to understand that where did we get any of our medicines from it you know it all came from plants originally um plants were used and then things were extracted from plants and then they were isolated and then they were synthesized and whatever but it, it came from the plants originally um so you know it, it might sound like a bit of hocus pocus to people but there's there's real science there um, and I think our degree did that it brought the two sides together which was badly needed no completely and I, and I know myself even sometimes when I've brought um friends on like a like a little seashore walk and then maybe I've explained okay well so that was the seaweed actually that you had in your seaweed bath but this is the one that you eat and if you yeah. have thyroid issues this is the one you can't have because they have loads of iodine in it and they're like same kind of thing they're like oh my god yeah it's starting to see the science behind it as well as the kind of traditional uses and stuff of them as well um so you're originally a Tipperary woman yourself but you said yeah. you also lived by the sea where where were you living when you were kind of so I lived in Mayo for quite a while um up near Black Sod and I spent some time around Belmullet um and yeah it's beautiful I mean it's some of the most gorgeous stretches of sea um not crowded you have it all to yourself <laughs> um so yeah absolutely fabulous part of the country um I also go to Innisgrown and Sligo quite a bit as well um okay, which cool. of course is famous for its seaweed bats uh which I love oh my god and actually those ones I was thinking that we were telling the listeners a little bit about seaweed bats the one in Enniscrown is fantastic because I think they are the really traditional old ones aren't they they are they're the Edwardian ones like they're proper old school you know you can sit inside in the wooden box and steam yourself and then you get into this big porcelain bath with the you know the big taps it's yeah it's I think it's a proper old style experience yeah, completely and um <laughs> Tracy, one last question before I let you go. Um, one that we've been kind of asking everyone on the podcast is um, for our listeners, um, is there kind of one tip, one takeaway that you would have for them, um, something that they can kind of help do to protect our oceans? I guess for me, it's talking to your children. Um, I have two young boys, 10 and five, and just talking to them and explaining about the importance of the oceans and how, you know, the small things that we do in our own lives, like cutting down on plastic, um, you know, watching how much we plastic we consume, things like that can, can actually make a massive difference. And I mean, if we can get our kids to understand it and see the importance of it, that's going to go a long way. Amazing. Tracy, thanks so much for joining me. No worries. Thanks for having me. And our next guest is Talia Britton. Like our other guests, her life and work has centered around the ocean, so much so that in 2020, she became Ireland's first female Navy diver. Talia is here with me now to chat a little bit more about what inspired her to join the Navy. Actually, whenever I initially joined back in 2014, I had no idea that I actually had familial ties to the Navy. Um, and it was my great uncle, um, Robert Morrow, who's my granny's brother. He served in the Royal Navy as a surgeon captain. So he was a doctor within the Royal Navy. Um, and when he retired from the Navy, he actually left uh, the rank of surgeon captain. So to put it into perspective, um, Commander Roberto O'Brien, he was one rank ahead of her, but obviously he's a surgeon captain. So it's, um, it's a doctor's rank within the Royal Navy, which is really nice because I actually had no idea whenever I joined and it was only after I joined that he kind of got in contact with my dad and stuff and said that it was really, really nice that there was still um, someone in the family who's kind of following in 
the kind of the naval footsteps and things like that. So I suppose that was kind of a really nice moment for us as a family. And then um, I got commissioned in 2016 and I was hoping that he'd actually be there for it. But unfortunately, um, he actually passed away the summer just uh, like literally like two months just before I was commissioned as an officer. Um, but he'd actually given me his um, his sword. So officers have um, swords. So um, like obviously we have different ones in the Irish Navy or um, Irish Naval Service compared to the Royal Navy. But I'm um, on this particular occasion because of the familial ties, I was actually allowed to use his sword for my own commissioning ceremony and everything. So it was a really, really nice kind of, I suppose, like the heritage there, or that kind of moment for me. But um, yeah, it was good for my whole family too, I think. You recently became a Navy diver as well. So was that kind of like additional training on top of the degree that you already did? I think we've, we've kind of heard about it a little bit in Ireland. It's, it's crazy things like a 70% failure rate. Sounds like Navy SEALs to me. It's really cool. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and maybe what it felt like when you actually received your logbook as well? Um, I'm just putting a full disclaimer right there. I am not claiming to be a Navy <laughs> SEAL at all. Um, yeah, the training, like, so it's not part of the degree. And it's not an, like it's not uh, something that you have to do if you join the Navy at all. Um, it was just something that was always on my radar that I kind of was just like, whenever I joined the Navy, I was like, you know, that's something. I always kind of looked at the Naval Diving section, it's like, I want to do that, you know, something that I always had my sights set on. Um, I kind of always find that like I was always redrawn to like anyone who was in the Navy, like in the diving section, just always wanted to ask questions if I ended up on a ship or bumped into someone who was a diver, I was always asking, oh, you know, what you like, what you do, do you know, like, what's the training like? And you kind of just develop a sort of an awareness then, or what you're thinking is awareness of what you're getting yourself into whenever you're asking all the questions. Um, but it wasn't particularly anything to do with my actual nautical science degree. And so I came afterwards, I actually had to finish all my training before I could apply for the course through work. Um, and once I did that, so kind of comes up and I think all our routine orders. So that's where they publish all the different courses that are available to people. Um, so I went into through that point. Um, but obviously, like I said, it's always been on my radar. So it wasn't something that I kind of was just like, oh yeah, I'm just going to give it a go. Um, so I'm just kind of curious because I think I, like, uh, I read a lot about online about um, and I'll ask you maybe a little bit after as well about what the Navy divers do but um, I saw some very cool footage of like it looked like you were all in some uh, some kind of decompression tank and then there was some kind of like uh, course that was being followed while everyone was in like full dive gear so so just in terms of like was it like a a, a year-long course a 10-week course um, and kind of what did you actually do while you were doing your dive training? So the course is initially supposed to be like 11 weeks so that's for your basic um, air diving so that's like kind of like your scuba but like it's more based on a working aspect so initially for the first two weeks you'd end up covering like physical training so you do anything from like water circuits to long fin swims you bring your running to just kind of build up your own physical endurance for the first two weeks so you don't actually do any diving so you're not actually under the water you're in the water but you're not under it for the first two um, the third week, which is also the first week of diving, um, we covered something uh, called lifeline signals. So it's the first time we were actually introduced to going underwater and then you need to learn all the different signals. Obviously, there's no communications underwater, so everything's done through lines. So we call them poles and bells. Um, so, so you know what to do whenever you're tethered to the line of which way someone wants to send you, which way to go. Um, after that, we move on to something called Jack Stay, which is the lines set out in a cordon underwater, and you're to work along those lines. It's pretty much to send you out to do certain jobs and things like that if you were looking for where you had to go underwater. Um, after that, we moved on to um, something called Ship's Bottom Search or um, Full Service. So we learned how to start out at the bag of the ship or the stern of the ship and to go under and you literally have to work as a team kind of searching the entire uh, length of the ships so from that aspect obviously because yes I've been working on ships for the last few years but I've never really 
paid much attention to the hull of the ship or the bottom of the ship. Yes, I'd seen it in like a dry dock and things, but I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, there's a propeller and there's a rudder. It's not until you're actually right there touching it all that you're like, oh my God, these things are massive. Or, you know, I never, you don't take an appreciation for where the different parts of the equipment are on the ship until I think you've actually been under it and you're actually like, you're able to feel your way with your hands the whole way along. That's actually only brings up to week five. Um, after that, you go into different aspects. We call it like, um, we do different types of searches. So whether they're key wall searches, circular searches. So those things would be utilized, obviously, if we're clearing a key wall for just say foreign vessels or anything like that for um, anything that could potentially be placed along a key wall. So that's kind of um, like a safety thing for ships coming in? Yeah, 100%. Oh. Um, we kind of do that, but then there's obviously circular searches. You learn in different searching techniques because yeah. you need these, obviously, if you're doing, whether you're just doing search for an object or obviously if you're doing a search and recovery and if you're looking yeah. for someone, there's different types of search techniques that we were that we would have been doing. Um, so Talia, we probably have some, or I'd say we nearly definitely do have some some paddy divers um, listening here. I've, I've done my own open water. I imagine it's very uh, minimal training by comparison, but um, I'd just love to know a little bit about when you actually received that logbook, what was it like, or was there kind of a ceremony or anything? Yeah, it was really nice. So um, like the last two weeks of our training, we were actually brought to a place called Bay Island, so it's down in West Cork. And we kind of like everything that we'd learned from um, from surface supply to the key wall searches and the underwater searches and um, things to do with the recompression chamber that you were asking me about earlier on. Um, all of that was kind of tied in together. Um, and it was just kind of, I suppose, like, sorry, hell week if it's two weeks long, but <laughs> um, we've seen like everything amalgamated um, just to kind of test us. And the days were very, very long. But on the last day, and um, we were actually run to there's this there's this hill you know to me it felt like a mountain it was so it took so long to get to the top but there's a cross at the top and um, that marks the highest point on Bear Island and um, it was there that they actually awarded us our diving badges I suppose that was kind of yeah that was kind of like the greatest like the best feeling I suppose because like we'd all kind of made it to the top we kind of got there and yeah, they stood there and they kind of handed us out our white flashes. So this is one that we were all given out. Cool. And um, yeah, I know it was, was really, really overwhelming because it was like a long process. Like I know I'd said that it was 11 weeks, but my course actually had to deal with the, the COVID pandemic. So we actually started in like February then it stopped in March and it didn't restart again until June. And we didn't actually end up finishing until August. Um, so because of that, it was there was a lot of kind of misconceptions like, is it going ahead? Is it not? Are we ever going to get it finished? And yeah. or are we going to have to restart it all again next year? So it was, there was that kind of feeling. So whenever it was actually completed, it was I don't really know. It was just it was just really, really overwhelming <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> No, that's that's really, really cool. And I can imagine that because then it goes from being 11 weeks to like maintaining the same level of probably physical fitness and stress the whole way through. That's that's very intense. Um, and I'm just curious to know, obviously, you have, you have such a cool job within the Navy. And um, we, we really enjoyed talking to Roberta kind of about her, her job and how she got into it as well. Um, for anyone, uh, maybe some of the we've got quite a broad listenership for any of the kind of younger people listening um, that would maybe be thinking of joined in either the commissioned or the non-commissioned ranks. Any piece of advice you might give to them? Um, yeah, <laughs> um, the Navy is like, or even just the Defence Forces General, it's definitely something I do think everyone should try or that everyone is capable for. Um, like to me, I guess maybe I'm being very, very biased here because I actually, um, I really do enjoy my job. Um, I do feel like it is a career for everyone. There's many various avenues that you can go down um, if you join, whether it's commissioned or non-commissioned. Um, like if you apply yourself you can achieve whatever you want within the navy and it does give you the sense you can get a sense of adventure you can get a sense of accomplishment from it or anything like that um, so I do think it's something that especially people who are, might be like in school and I'm not really sure what I want to do and um, there's no problem in actually trying it you know I must think today is very different now like um, people used to look like uh, I suppose all jobs as careers 
a long time ago but now it's more kind of like oh I can chop and change my job do you know if I want to if I, I can try it and if I don't like it I can move on to something else I do think that's something that we kind of have to embrace now that people aren't going to stay in one job or one career forever do you know not say like saying that like at the moment I'm not planning on leaving <laughs> I really do enjoy my job but um yeah one bit of advice I was to say that it's everyone should give it a go or if you're not sure what you want to do um, you don't need to be an Olympian. They're not looking for the fittest people on earth to to join. You'll get your training. Everyone starts at a basic level and kind of gets built up from there. So if you um any misconceptions or if you're afraid of joining for for to say even physical fitness reasons or anything like that, um I'd say I wouldn't worry about that kind of thing. You should if you can apply yourself, you can achieve absolutely anything within the defense forces. Very cool, Tally. I love it. Um, and so one last question. Obviously, you achieved something very exciting last year. Um, any kind of hopes or goals um, within your work for the coming year? Just at the moment, I'm coming to the end of my sea time. So um, within the Navy, you do two years at sea, generally two years in a shore-based job. So I'm actually coming to the end of my sea rotation. Um, so at the moment, I'm just waiting to see where the wind blows me and what direction I'm going to be taking from my shore-based job. Um, yeah I don't know nothing no other mad plans to me I think I'm just kind of quite happy to see how it's going for now yeah cool no totally uh Talia thanks so much for joining us on the show no problem at all thank you so much for having me (laughs) developing Ireland's marine economic potential while also regulating and protecting our very delicate offshore environment is a difficult balance to strike but key to this is Joe Silk director of marine environment and food safety services at the marine institute chatting to Joe now to find out more we have a number of different roles in the Marine Institute, uh, from you know measuring fish stocks and oceanography. We have the, the two national research vessels, um, soon to be joined next year, hopefully by by a new vessel which is currently being built. And um, so, and a number of other roles then with regards to funding and various other aspects of providing advice and services to government. But my own particular area is marine environment and and food safety. Okay, cool. And um, I guess, so when you're kind of talking about food safety, are we talking about uh, like aquaculture and kind of things coming in from there? Or is it also kind of what's coming in from fisheries? Is it testing? Yes, How does it work? exactly. We have, um, okay, so within marine environment and food safety, we, we have a number of different roles. Most of them are very closely associated with legislation that we have to adhere to. So marine environmental legislation and food safety legislation. So we're talking about seafood. Okay, so um, a lot of this is to do with the aquaculture industry. Uh, so, on, for instance, you mentioned this, the, shelf, the seafood safety aspect of the work that we're doing. Um, a large portion of that will be to do with shellfish safety. So we have a, a, a thriving aquaculture industry around the coast. Um, some, um, you know, they, they estimate that um, the aquaculture industry is, is worth, you know, about 46% of the total value of seafood that's been uh, produced in Ireland. Uh, And most of that is coming from the salmon and the oyster industry. So we have to make sure that the the food that that is being produced, that it's of the the top quality, that it's it's safe to put on the market. Now with shellfish, uh, from time to time, they become unsafe to eat. This is just a natural part of their life cycle. Shellfish filter uh, food from the water. They actually filter uh, particles called phytoplankton. These are plant plankton that are floating in the water naturally, and that's the food of filter feeding shellfish. Now, like all plants, there's a number of them are toxic. So, yeah, like on on the land, we have you know some some plants that produce poisons. So and these it's would exact be the, same the kind of the toxic sea. algal blooms that we'd be hearing about every once in a while in the summer. That's it. Yes, we do get blooms of some of these species, and when they're present in the water because the shellfish are filtering these out, they become unsafe to eat. So we have a monitoring programme right around the coast, uh, week in, week out, all the year round, to ensure that the shellfish that are going to market, that they are safe. So that's part of, of, of the work that we do in, in my section. And I guess we're kind of talking about blooms and things like that. We're also thinking about water quality. Is that kind of part of what you're doing as well there in the Marine Institute? It is. Um, so... Working backwards, I suppose, from, from the shellfish, we're, we're checking the water to see what toxic species of phytoplankton are in the water. So that's another monitoring program that we have. 
So this is taking water samples and, and checking them to see what, you know, are, are the phytoplankton, are they good ones, are, are the, the, the toxic ones? And then we can give some sort of a prediction as to what's likely to happen in the next week or two. You know, if there's That's a toxic right. bloom present, you know, we can, we can look at that and, and give that kind of prediction. But apart from that, we're also looking then at, at water quality. So again, as I said, all of these are driven by directives. So we have the Water Framework Directive and the Marine Strategy Framework Directive. So these, again, are two pieces of legislation that we work very closely with the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage uh, in, uh, in carrying out monitoring around the coast uh, and checking water samples to see what levels of contamination are present in the in the water. Yeah, completely, Joe. And in fairness, Ireland kind of looks at water quality and, and testing at a very impressive scale. I know myself, I surf and uh, I've surfed in America and Mexico. And even just after a little bit of rainfall, you'll be out of the water for, for days, even weeks sometimes, because they're having such poor water quality issues. You know, like, I mean, we're very lucky, I suppose, in, in the location where we are. We're right out on the edge of, of Europe. And... Um, and that's not saying that we don't need to protect the water. Like I mean, but like I mean, we we do have a, a very good environment to start with. We're in a in a perfect location for activities like you mentioned there, like surfing and, and all of the tourism activities that that occur around the sea. So we we really do have to mind this, and you know, making sure that we have adequate monitoring in place is really really important. It's important for us, and it's important, you know, for future generations. You know, that, completely. You know, I guess. But, you know, they say the custodians of, of, of the environment, but, you know, it is really important that, that we, we carry out these activities to make sure that, you know, we protect what we have. Yeah, and I guess, and, and kind of talking about that custodian idea, um, like for you personally, what is your kind of background, your, your connection to the ocean? Have you always lived by the sea or where did that yeah. come from? Um, I, I, I think it was in my blood from the time I was born. You know, I, I grew up in Galway. Uh, we were right beside the River Corrib. So my, my childhood was spent either on, in or around water. I was either, you know, paddling in, 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 in the river or out in Salt Hill uh, beside. And so then as, you know, my, my time came to decide what I was going to do, uh, it was kind of obvious that I was going to have something to do with water. So I, I started off in GMIT or RTC Galway as it was back in them days. Um, and, and give my age away but um yeah so I, I studied aquatic biology to start with and then i uh, continued in trinity uh with uh, a master's in marine environment cool. and you're and you're back based in galway now back in galway now and i've worked with the, the marine institute since the very early days um uh, we're based in in renville uh we've got a fantastic uh location and premises in, in renville 54 different laboratories uh, right out surrounded by the sea so it's 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 a fantastic place to work and um, and we have really state-of-the-art equipment we have as i said you know laboratories with with the top quality equipment so that we're able to monitor the environment monitor seafood safety using state-of-the-art methods and uh, we also have our, our research vessels which are are a really great asset we're able to get out onto the continental shelf and further afield i've been across the atlantic on on the celtic explorer doing research. Um, so it is, um, you know, we are very well um, kitted out with, uh, with uh, infrastructure to, to carry out our work. Absolutely. And I guess um, all of that data and, and everything that you guys are kind of collecting and monitoring is, is really feeding into uh, kind of all of the end users that are, are working in our marine economy. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about, say, the importance of that to local communities or also, I guess, the importance of the, the sustainability side of it as well? Yeah, well, well, you know, the, the aquaculture um, industry, as I mentioned, you know, it, it's, it's quite important where it's located. Um, you know, the, the shellfish um, part of aquaculture is worth probably around 50 million, just slightly more than 50 million a, a year. So while that wouldn't, you know, I'm just talking about shellfish now, well, that wouldn't be a huge, you know, amount of money nationally, if you think about it. Uh, it's where it's located that makes it really important. We're talking about local communities, villages, small areas around the coast where there aren't maybe a huge amount of other options, where there mightn't be industry or, or close to, to towns and cities uh, for people to, to, to work. So I think the, uh, the development of the aquaculture industry uh, over the past decades has been really kind of you know, um, important in keeping those local communities together. 
uh, and the support then that we provide through you know the the monitoring Completely. and making sure that and in fairness, quality is good make sure that you know that that will remain intact absolutely and you can kind of see as well i know for myself either in i know some oyster fishermen in uh, uh, farmers i guess uh, in sligo and then i, I work in killybegs as well so we really see how that kind of chain of employment goes from like the people tending or harvesting to processing and it's you know kind of creating a lot of jobs in kind of smaller rural towns obviously mm. um marine kind of planning is, is something that's going to be kind of integral to that um we know that there's a a marine area planning bill going through the dial at the moment could you tell us a little bit about that yeah and this is again a, a new area that we are are again involved in with the department of housing uh local government and heritage um uh, and our own parent department department of agriculture uh, food and marine um so the marine spatial planning activities that, that we're involved in uh you know this is a, a, this is preparing um and, and you know delivering factual information uh, to the government and to the public on the different activities that are, you know, coexisting in in the marine. Okay, so everything from fisheries to to you know um, seaweed harvesting, sports recreation, telecommunications. If you think about all of the different activities, you know, wastewater, you know, the the new um, energy, you know, renewable energy from from in in uh, in the marine. And aquaculture and energy and you know uh, and defence everything that you know is is coexisting in the sea, making sure that it can all coexist you know harmoniously and that you know that there is a plan. So this is similar to the planning acts that we have on the land. We're now moving into the sea and making sure that you know that there is a place for everybody and and that you know when activities are um, being planned that they're being planned you know you know with logic in, in mind and making sure that things can coexist well together absolutely and actually um just like what you touched on a little bit there um about uh kind of seaweed as well so so we've kind of talked about the the aquaculture side and, and obviously we, we talk a good bit about fisheries across the podcast um could you tell us a little bit about um kind of how seaweed is managed in ireland it's uh how is it kind of working at the moment is it harvested is it deliberately grown in a farming method or, or what way is it done both um, and you know this again it's it's, it's there's it, there's been traditional harvesting of seaweed down through the years you know people have, have gathered seaweed off the shore for for hundreds of years you know to use as fertilizer but more recently you know the um, the health benefits of of seaweed as food additives and in cosmetics and in in various different other applications you know alginates that are used in, in medical products uh, has been kind of you know deemed to be you know worth kind of investigation uh, and a number of new industries have sprung up you know from that so you know we think in terms of aquaculture as being either shellfish or or salmon you know finfish uh, but seaweed is is now becoming you know a third area of, of aquaculture that's, that's very important so we're carrying out a number of, product, of, of projects looking at you know various different methods for assessing seaweed in in the marine and also just the socioeconomic value of of seaweed harvesting and the various different activities that are carrying out in that sector so it's it's a new area and and again something that will have to be planned for and yeah. and worked through in the future and now this this is something that gets me really excited god knows why but i i find seaweed fascinating um so just in case any of our other listeners have the same excitement as i do is there anywhere on the marine institute website or anything that they can read about um kind of those research that researcher studies that are going on at the moment or is it still kind of in progress yeah if you go on to the marine institute website and um, at the at the top of the the website there is a, a search box and if, if you put in seaweed or seaweed harvesting in there you get some information there so there's okay, a number of different uh, bits fantastic. on our yeah. website about that. Actually, and just as a, as a general uh, plug, I would recommend the website. I've, it's fantastic for, for kind of uh, both education for any age group and also just for finding out about more about more what the Marine Institute do. So, Joe, I'm going to ask you one more question. And thank you so much for being with us today. We've been asking this of every guest that comes on the podcast, which is uh, if you could give one tip one little tidbit for our listeners of something that they can do today um, to help protect our oceans. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you think about that, I think just more interaction with the marine is, is something that I would encourage. We have a fantastic environment there. We have, you know, industries that are, are growing uh, in the marine day by day. 
and, and just get down there, get it, you know, we're, we're, this is oceans of learning. We're trying to encourage people to interact more with the sea uh, and just get out there and, and see what's going on. Uh, and finally, we were just talking there about planning. I think looking to the future, again, marine spatial planning is, is very important. Uh, and the whole area of aquaculture licensing and, you know, delivering factual information to inform government and public. Um, it's, it's part of our job. Uh, so interact with the information that we're putting out there on our website. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Finn. Renewable energy from our oceans, both wind and wave, has huge potential for the marine economy. One leader of the charge in this area is Patricia Comiskey, Ocean Energy Programme Manager at the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. Say I grew up by the sea, so I've always had a real interest in, in the marine. Um, my dad was uh, in the Navy Reserves, which is called Slough Marine. And uh, so he had a real keen interest in, in sailing. Uh, and he bought a little boat and we used to go out sailing together. And I think that's where my real grow came from. And then when I went to college and I studied zoology and specialized in marine biology and got the chance to join the, the, the college diving club, etc. So, yeah, I think I've always had a, a huge interest in the marine space. And uh, yeah, it's a real passion. Very cool. And so obviously, we're, and we're going to talk about it in a little bit, you work in renewables now, but um, before you were working with um, BIM, so Board Iskiwara, so that's the um, fisheries, yeah. could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so when I finished my master's in Aberdeen, um, I kind of came back to Ireland and uh, looked around for opportunities. And I was, I think at the time I was really lucky, there was a real boom in, in kind of opportunities uh, in, in this space. And I managed to secure a, a role with BIM where I worked on um, the um, fisheries policy was being reviewed. Cool. And uh, basically I secured a role to support that work. So it was a kind of a, re uh, a review that was happening with uh, the industry and the department and you know, the Brain Institute were, were involved. So um, it, it gave me a real, um, deep insight into the complexities of, of marine policy. Um, so I kind of stayed in that space and I ended up working in a European project called Regional Advisory Councils, which are now just the advisory councils. Um, and these councils bring um, fishermen and NGOs and, and government policymakers together to try and create appropriate policies for, for the fisheries sector. So it was a really great space to learn about kind of how to collaborate and how to inform best policy and I suppose how to listen to stakeholders and understand where, where the challenges and the concerns are from all different sides. So yeah, I was really lucky in my career in BIM. I learned so much from, from my 10 years there. That's really cool. And especially, I guess, looking at um, such a big piece of legislation like that, there's just so many stakeholders involved. It's a great, uh, it's a great way to learn to, to kind of work with so many different moving parts and different parties. And then obviously, um, more recently, the opportunity came up to work in renewables and you kind of, I'm sorry, I love a good pun. You made the switch. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so so actually, um, when I first moved into SAI, I actually wasn't working in the, the ocean space. Um, I was working in energy efficiency. Um, and I suppose the, the good thing was it gave me a real keen understanding of where the challenges were um, from the point of view of, um, I suppose, encouraging people to understand what they could do at an individual level to, to kind of reduce impact on the environment and reduce their energy needs. So I worked for a number of years in the energy efficiency space, both with the homeowners and looking at um, kind, of, kind of encouraging mechanisms to, for homeowners to, to upgrade their homes, um, but also with the communities and with utilities. So with the likes of ESP, Airgrid, Energia, um, Airtricity, looking at how we could in, in, um, influence utilities to support kind of energy efficiency projects. So, so again, I was really lucky. I had a kind of a very, uh, very good um, introduction into that whole space and uh, opportunities to really learn on my feet. So, so. Um, and then basically an opportunity came up in the ocean energy team 
which at the time was being led by Owen Sweeney. Um, and I think Owen was such a huge influence in this space. Um, did a lot of really, really great work um, to, to move things on um, for Ireland. Um, and he had, again, come from the Marine Institute into SAI and kind of had driven that program for, for a number of years. But he actually retired. So there was, um, I suppose, a, a gap within the program for kind of others to come into it. Yeah. So I came in soon after Owen retired into that program to try and, and lead on some of the, the work that, the really good work he had started. Fantastic. And I guess, uh, so I myself actually work up in Killybegs um, in the fisheries port there. And it's been just really interesting to see in the last kind of two years while I've been there, we're watching a lot of the kind of construction happening for offshore um, wind farms. Could you just tell me a little bit about maybe Ireland's potentials with offshore renewables or kind of what's happening? Yeah, so so yeah, so a piece of work that would have, again, which, which Owen would have started, um, and I suppose I was lucky to maybe uh, implement, was uh, the Offshore Renewable Energy Development Plan. So that was a piece of work that would have started back around 2010, um, but got commissioned and, and published in 2014. Um, and it was looking at how we could, uh, the, the actions and activities that need to be done in order to progress um, offshore renewable energy uh, for Ireland. And the studies that had been done to underpin the plan uh, indicated a 70 gigawatt potential for Ireland within 100 nautical miles of our coast. And so um, maybe just for our listeners, what, 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 what does, does that kind of mean? Yeah, what does it mean? <laughs> needs a lot of energy cool. so basically <laughs> what like our current electricity needs in ireland our national electricity needs five gigawatts so that's our peak wow natural okay. our national need yeah. so 70 is obviously significant 14 times of that yeah. so or 70 excuse me is 14 times of that so you know there's there's massive potential off our coasts and basically that plan set in in place a, a number of actions and activities that, that needed to be done in order to try and deliver on it. And, and primarily the initial actions and activities were around, uh, you know, up, upgrading the, the consenting and licensing process to allow for activities to happen out offshore. There's again, a very complex policy area. Yeah. Um, and it is a piece of work that is very much being driven by both our own department and the Department of, of Housing and Local Government and Heritage to upgrade the consenting um, rules that are in place uh, to allow for, for offshore uh, renewables. But in, in more recent years, um, the government has, I suppose, really jumped on to this, uh, you know, has, has really seen the potential and realized uh, the potential for this space uh, in order to meet our, our, um, our, our uh, carbon emission, uh, our targets, our European targets for reducing carbon emissions. And, and, and kind of what would be our, uh, in terms of like what we're producing through say wind energy and stuff now versus obviously the things that I'm seeing that are being constructed, what's our kind of timeline on that? So our current timeline is 2030. We have a, a target to meet in 2030, which is to reduce our emissions against our baseline of 1995 by the target is actually 55%, but we've set 70% because we basically didn't meet our 2020 targets. So, so from a government perspective, they they have decided to increase our our, our ambitions, um, and part of that is to, as I say to um, make up for, for what we haven't been able to achieve so far. We have done a lot on the electricity side in fairness, but there's been other areas where, where we haven't been able to, to meet our targets. So basically we're, we're planning to reduce um, our emissions by 70%. And part of the solution to do that is introducing significant offshore projects off the, you know, off the, uh, the coast. Um, and by that, I mean, the plan at the moment is for us to have five gigawatts of projects off the Irish coast by 2020. Amazing. And is there is there any kind of, like obviously we've seen before, maybe and like you touched on it there with the kind of um, heritage or de development groups onshore, um, maybe wanting to see the push towards offshore. Is there any obstacles for that at the moment or is that kind of going ahead? Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose there's, there's certainly challenges. Um, I, I think there are challenges that, can be overcome, um, it, but we need to work smartly on them. So as I mentioned, um, 
there is a lot of effort uh, being put into uh, improving the consenting regime um, and ensuring that that's fit for purpose um, to, in order to um, support these projects. And the consenting regime that will be put in place will be for all activities, uh, offshore activities, but ORE uh, or offshore renewable at the moment, it, it's it's a kind of I suppose a certainly a priority for us that that, that legislation is a place to support that. Um, the other area that that a lot of focus has uh, been on over the last uh, two years is on on our grid capacity and what needs to be done to update the grid capacity in order to support offshore renewables. Um, and that is basically both the, the grid going out to the projects, so um, offshore grid capacity, but also onshore what's needed to, to strengthen the grid in order to accommodate this additional energy need. Um, and then the third piece of work that's, that's very much being progressed is, is looking at how these projects can be funded in the long term and how we can get significant benefit for the Irish consumer um, in, in these projects. So it's, it's a scheme called the RES scheme, uh, which uh, the department are running, which looks at, I suppose, providing a guaranteed price for electricity uh, going forward. So there's been a lot of that kind of work being done uh, in the background. I guess drawing from your own passion and your background in your career as, as kind of one last question, a takeaway for our listeners, could you give us, uh, give them maybe some tip or idea, something they can implement now to kind of help protect our oceans or our environment? Yeah, so I suppose for the oceans, um, I, I think we are all part of a bigger system. And um, certainly in SCAI, we'd always talk about energy efficiency first. Um, I think the biggest threat to biodiversity is climate change. So if we can try and reduce our own energy needs, our own energy uses, um, I think that will help any part of our environment. I think you know, our, our, you know, maintaining our biodiversity is uh, and, and bolstering it is so important. So I think you know, as an individual looking at you know, your own carbon footprint, I think is always really, really important and trying to challenge yourself there. And um, specifically, the one thing that I always, um, I suppose, hate to see, uh, and I think it, we all do, is litter. Uh, so if we could all, again, reduce our own rain, our own litter, which does end up in the sea in, in, in uh, many cases. Um, and like even that at an individual level, you know, kind of collecting your own waste and bringing it home and making sure you don't leave it on the beach, like really simple thing. Absolutely, Patricia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time. No problem, Finn, it's lovely to talk to you. So guys, that's it for this episode of the Oceans of Learning podcast. We have heard from such a great range of speakers there today, all about their connection to the ocean and how they work with it. Um, for the next episode, we will be focusing in specifically more on climate change. If you have been enjoying the podcast, do rate, review, subscribe. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. I'm Finn van der Aar, and we hope to see you next time. Oceans of Learning, the podcast celebrating our seas and Ireland's marine resource is presented by the Marine Institute. To find out more, go to marine.ie.